Please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so set your phones to airplane mode, meeting mode, or just turn it off. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight for his fifth session. I could talk about him for the rest of my days. Next to God, he's my favorite person, and... um, so I give you for his fifth session, Peter and my husband. My name is Peter, recovered alcoholic. Uh, grateful to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, uh, again, thank the group for having me and, and setting this place up the way it looks every week. It's fabulous coming in here. Um, I, I've said this a million times from this podium. Uh, I feel like I'm at an AA conference when I walk in here and the greeters are uh, um, always welcoming people coming in. So thank you for having me. Um, loving God separated me from alcohol June 23rd, 1988. I'm a recovered alcoholic. And uh, I say that not to be special, different, anything less than that, quite frankly, would be falsely humble. But this God is infinite mercy took me to Alcoholics Anonymous. Booze had a lot to do with that, by the way. Um, but got me to Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, uh, little by slowly uh, start to wake up spiritually. 
and what we talk about entering the world of the spirit and life takes on a new meaning and I have a design for living that works even in rough going and I didn't see that when I got here in 1988 I have a sponsor whose name is Bob Azans from St. Paul, Minnesota and I'm very grateful for the lessons I get from him every time I call him uh, I do have a sponsor that I call once a week is my call time. Sometimes it's more than that, but I don't have a sponsor name only. I found that doesn't work for many, and I didn't want to even dabble in that. Uh, since I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, other than my first six months when I was just floundering around, depending on people and get a yes from this person and a no from that person for the same question, um, I got locked into a sponsor. And that happened after, I would call it, my second surrender. Uh, the first one, I was surrendered on June 23rd, 1988, and almost six months to the day, I bottomed out in Alcoholics Anonymous. What I was doing was going to meetings, and God was keeping me from the drink and non-conference-approved dry goods, but I had no spiritual muscles. I wasn't working out in the AA gym, so I was left to my own self-reliance and figuring things out on my own, and life was still my master and was gobbling me up a day at a time. And that's when I start to experience all sorts of strange sprees to deal with the uncomfortability, the discomfort, the restlessness and irritability. Yet when I walked into a meeting, an old-timer would say, how you doing? I would do the usual, I'm great, I'm wonderful, I'm so grateful today, and I wasn't. I'm glad I wasn't living in an abandoned building like when I got here and I wasn't homeless, penniless on the streets and doing all the things you do in that life. But after that, I couldn't see much meaning and I got thirsty on December 22nd, 1988. Really thirsty. And I was driving something called a rent-a-wreck. I think they call them in Minnesota. It was like a dollar a day or something and the car had dents and bald tires, but that's all I had. And... Um, it was freezing cold out, and it was snow, and it was just ugly, and I'm driving down this main boulevard, and I, I, I remember telling myself, I'm going to go into the first liquor store, or if I see, you know, Flacco on the corner doing a jitterbug on Coppins, I need something. I can't do this. And I got real tight and real nervous, and as I'm driving, I, I says, oh, yeah, let me, let me ask God for some guidance here, and I prayed like my life depended upon it and found myself in a town called Cottage Grove, Minnesota, knocking on Joe T's door. And I told him my tales of woe. He said hello, and I just vomited all over the guy with my, my stuff. And uh, when I came up for air, he said something that I still remember today, 34-plus years later. He said to me, where are you with God on the 12 steps? And I says, well, when do you start the steps? He says, when you stop throwing up, you're late. Now, I didn't care for that answer. What I wanted was a hug and a cup of coffee, and I know how you're feeling. Let's identify all your feelings right now. And uh, that didn't happen. He gave me the truth. And we live life forward and understand it backwards, and it was the best thing he told me up until that point. I had a sponsor named Mark H, and he says, there's times when you sponsor, well, you have to tell the sponsee something that hurts you to say and hurts them to hear, but somebody's got to say the truth. And I was just desperate enough, desperate where the desperation was still screaming louder than the ego, where I didn't like the answer, but I knew deep down inside the soul heard it with its ears that this guy was telling me the truth. The last thing I needed at that point was a hug, and I understand. He eventually did that, but he had to get cut right through the mess I was in. And thank the good Lord, by God's grace, I didn't get drunk that day. Perhaps if I was in New York, I would have got drunk and you have a different speaker here tonight. 
And when I came home from Minnesota, uh, I was away in treatment, halfway, three-quarters, sober. I always thought a halfway house was for criminals, uh, not for me. I'm an upstanding, good drunk. And um, there I was in a halfway house in a town called Hastings, Minnesota. The town population was me and a cow. I mean, that was about it. And uh, there was nothing. Um, and I moved over to three-quarter and sober living. And altogether, I'm away for a year. Now, when I first started this sober journey, if you would have told me in my first 30 days, you're going to go away for a year, I'm running, as desperate as I am. But they piecemeal me, little by slowly. And I use that in what I do for a living today. Well, let's do another month. Let's see where you're at. Because I know if we hang around in here long enough and we're desperate, we're going to catch, get traction. We're gonna, I'm going to start to like the effect produced by recovery. I'm going to start to like the effect produced by God. And little by slowly, as I'm doing service for others, I'm not so interested in me and the thing I used to do because I find myself getting right by this new way of living. And I was in a place desperate enough to exchange old ideas for new, and that was done for me by God. See, one thing I've, I've been made really clear on through a lot, hard, a lot of hard lessons and mistakes is of myself, I am nothing. The Father do it the works. As soon as I start to take over my life, I'm going to coast a little while, and then I'm going to run out of steam. And then life's going to start to get me again, and it becomes my master, and then I'm under it. And I, I, I'm, I can tell you from my own experience in 34 years, I've had my back against the wall more than a few times, more than I care to admit. I've experienced a lot of things many of us experience, betrayals, backstabbing, loss of income, loss of job, you name it, divorce, that kind of stuff. Think that I'm going to be homeless tomorrow morning and something deep down in here, it's the soul, allow me to put one foot in front of the other, chop wood and carry water. And I came home from Minnesota uh, uh, about a year sober. And uh, I found a sponsor who sounded awful lot like the people of Minnesota. He talked about living in all three sides of a triangle. And he was incredibly rigid, very rigid. Probably too rigid for many. But it's what I needed. And the soul said, ask that man. And he held me accountable, held my feet to the fire. Where's your inventory? When are you done with the fourth step? Did you pray today? Did you do meditation? It was like that. And I listened to him. I liked the bulldogs when I got in here. Because I'm an alcoholic, this mind's always looking for an easier, softer way. Just trim the edges. I want to change, but I don't want to be made uncomfortable. I want to change, but I don't want to suffer through the change. And the thing about this process I have found out, it's going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to feel pain. I'm going to feel like I'm suffering. And what's going on? I'm experiencing the death of self. The self is the killer and all its manifestations. I'm so enmeshed in that stuff. When you start to pull that away from me, I feel like I'm fighting for my life when I can't breathe, but it's necessary. I want to change. I'm willing to change. I just want to trim the, the leaves. I don't want to pull it out root and branch. And so now what I start to do in this process of telling you I want to change, I'm really dictating the change. I'm in self-reliance. I'm determining how far into the forest I'm going to go. I'm going to determine how much work I really need. I'm going to determine all the things I need to do. I'm going to look good and sound good in the process. And then I fall prey to, I want to be like the majority, whatever that majority is. Well, if they're doing that, I'm going to do this. And if they're doing that, I'm going to do that because I'm still looking for approval. Well, Bill talks about the herd instinct. I want to fit in. So if I'm hanging out with knuckleheads, I'm going to do knucklehead things, but I'm being accepted. And if I'm with big book people, I'm going to be a big book guy, but to the point where I'm dangerous to other people. 
And so I'm in charge of this whole journey. And there's no God in that. Because as soon as it gets too hot, I back off. As soon as God wants me to go all the way in, I'm not going all the way in. I start to settle for feeling comfortable rather than change. And I start to worship my emotions and my, my feelings rather than God who brought me there in the first place. And when that stuff starts to happen and I'm following what's popular at that moment rather than God, which means I'm going to walk alone very often because it isn't popular. I'm right back to running the show myself and my life starts to break up in pieces and defects rear their their heads again and they're glaring and I start to blame people for it. I say AA doesn't work. Conversely, when I'm really desperate and I'm willing to go all the way and as uncomfortable it makes me feel because the spirit is saying, we'll be okay, just keep moving. Chop wood and carry water, you'll be okay. And that's been my experience. My sponsors have held my feet to the fire more times than I, than I can uh, remember and held me accountable, confronted me. Simple things like it's a, a, a closed discussion meeting and there's 30 people in the room and there's 20 minutes left on the clock and they call on me and I speak for 15 minutes because I have such profound things to tell the room. And my sponsor would call me in the kitchen and say, come over here for a minute. How many people were in that room? How dare you go on that long? There's a newcomer in the back that needs to share. Discipline me. Discipline me, discipline me, discipline me. Because I'm an alcoholic and undisciplined. I need somebody to play sheriff in my life. And somebody put my hand in God's hand. And I start to understand that I can know mechanics. And I love the mechanics. But I can be a mechanics guru and still completely be falling apart. What I needed to do was have not only information, but seek a transformation with this information to be made new and really live in a place of God. And I would love to report to you, I do that seven days a week, 24-7, but I don't. Because I still have this mind that gets in there. It makes me believe it's God and it isn't. The frustration, even entitlement at times. I should have this by now. I should be there by now. I should look this way by now, and I'm not. Then you get, I get to the other place of this is where I'm at, warts and all, and I'm broken and flawed, and there's tremendous liberation in that, understanding my condition, that I work for God. I'm no better than anyone in this room. Even where I work for a living, I work for God. It makes me be a better worker. I'm a servant here. I work for God. It makes me a better AA member. It is not about me. And the ego, the alcoholic ego, it's always about me all the time. Let's not talk about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? I mean, this is how I operate. You know? We live life forward and understand it backwards. And one of the many things I've experienced, Sandy Beach would say this a lot. We come up here and we say what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. Then we get sober a while and it looks like what I think what it was like, what I think happened and how it is now because we see things differently. A different point of view and that's operating out of the soul. And I probably shared this story a few times, um, but uh, when I was a kid, um, I lived in, in, in Brooklyn, a town called Bensonhurst, and um, when I moved there as I was five years old, it was like living in the country. There were no cell phones, so we actually spoke to each other. People talked to each other. It was the coolest thing. New people, you have no idea what you were missing. In fact, when I came into AA in 1988, we didn't have cell phones. We stood by the door. Who's this guy? Get him. Now we're looking for likes on Facebook instead of looking for the newcomer. Uh, that's a talk, topic for another day, though. Um, 
but it was a cool town. And it was when kids could go play and when the street light went on, you had to be home and you went out for the day. Your parents said, go out and play. And in the summertime when school was out, my best friend, he had the same name as, his, as the actor. His name was Joe Pesci. That was his name. And uh, Joe, we would roll into my driveway around 6 or 7 in the morning. And we had the, uh, the bicycles with the big banana seats and the monkey bars, we call them. And he, we would attach baseball cards to the spokes so they'd make noise when you roll down the block. And Joey would roll in uh, and call me. You know, we didn't have phones. He, how you call someone, you call them, you holler. And he'd be in the driveway, and uh, I'd pop out of bed. He was in his pajamas and barefoot. I'd be in my pajamas and barefoot. And I'd run down to the backyard, hop on the bike, and he and I would just go for these bike rides in the neighborhood with our little spokes making noise like we had, you know, race cars. And we do this every morning in the summertime for about an hour or so. And then we come home, and my mom got hip to what I was doing, and she would leave a quarter on the counter, and we'd go into Max's candy store and get a little candy or something like you buy a lot for a quarter back then. And then we come home, mom, mom, mom would make us breakfast, we'd go play in the pool. The age of innocence. It was beautiful. I didn't care about my hair. I had my pajamas on. I'm bad. Seven years old, it was wonderful, as free as you can be. One day, we were in Max's, uh, Max's uh, candy store, and Joey walked out in front of me, and he was by his bike, and I'm following him out, and some older guy came in, maybe in his 30s. To me, he was like almost dead at that age. Somebody, when you're seven, 30, you're almost dead. And um, this guy walked in, and... What he said was he probably got a kick out of these two kids so early in the morning in their pajamas and barefoot. And he said something like, look at these two kids in their pajamas and barefoot riding their bikes. I would probably do the same if I saw that. I would be amused by that. But what this mind heard was, look at these two idiots in their pajamas. They should have jobs by now. <laughs> Looking back on it, what I touched for the first time that I can recall was the ego. It was probably there all along, but I touched it on that morning in that moment. And immediately, immediately, I became consumed with how I look. Not caring how I look, but consumed. It owned me and what people said about me and what people thought about me. And the next morning when Joey rolled into the driveway, it was the first time that I can recall I made an outright lie. And I says, I don't feel good. My mom doesn't want me going anymore. Let's have breakfast. We'll play in the pool. I don't feel like And I'm lying because that's what the ego did. It got in the way of fun. It got in the way of being free. It got in the way of innocence. It's the first time I can touch it. That followed me right to this podium tonight because it's there. And the only thing that's going to combat that is God. The ego, the pride, the seven deadly sins, this thinking mind will override everything except one power, and that's God. So it's my life depends upon my relationship with God because that ego will come back. It's the difference of putting on a sport jacket and coming to a podium to give AA its respect, and I like getting dressed. And it's a difference. I have to get dressed so people approve of me. One's freedom and one is bondage. And that ego followed me through my whole life, worried about what people said, what they thought of me, and how I appeared in front of them. Looked like Gucci on the outside, Walmart on the inside. That's my story. 
And I say that because going through inventory, I was sharing last week about my fear of firemen until I'm writing inventory and I realized my point of view was wrong. And there's so many things when I was writing inventory um, and even further than that, sharing in step five, when I have someone I could bounce it off and they're sharing back with me and give me feedback, I say, oh, I didn't see it that way. I didn't know I did things like that. And the grudges I was holding onto sometimes get a visceral reaction when I would think of someone because they did this to me. When I was growing up, my dad is a... Uh, alpha male from Southbrook and a, a, what we call legitimate tough guy and the people he ran with were very, very scary people. And uh, he was brought up in extreme poverty. His parents came here with basically the clothes on their back. They saw the Statue of Liberty. My grandmother said she wept because she was in America. Now they probably want to take the Statue of Liberty down, the way this thing's going. But uh, they knew they were free. And uh, they start out with nothing. And my dad was brought up in this and found the street as his way out. And by the time I came around, that's who he was. And there was no time for crying. Men don't cry. Even boys don't cry. You don't do that. No sensitivity, no warmth. And my dad, by his own admission, says he made mistakes with me. He was a little rough on me. I was the firstborn. And so we didn't get along. And all I could hold on to for years, in and out of treatment centers, even early AA, until I finally did a four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, that I would think about the times my dad was really rough on me and would embarrass me in front of company and do things like I would own that and I would have these really bad feelings about my dad. Then I do four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I'm writing out all these resentments. Then it comes time to share them. And I remember my very first sponsor says to me something like, you mean your dad was bad all the time? He was just evil? And that opened up the door to, some, to think about this for a minute. And I remember thinking, I remember telling my sponsor, this was during my first fifth step. I said, well, no. He said, well, why don't you give me an example? I remember when I was making Holy Communion as a Catholic, we had a, a nun who looked like Hulk Hogan. She was rough. And uh, she had told us, once we get into church and the service begins, no one's to get up and no one's going to use the bathroom. And we were petrified of her. And she said, if you do that, I'm going to run you out of church and you're not going to make communion. And she was stern, so we, I didn't want that. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm eight years old uh, making communion, and I have to use the bathroom. And I'm petrified. And what I did was I wet myself sitting in the pew. And when the service was over, you know, my mom was there, my dad was there, my grandparents were just thrilled. And we went home in the car, and my grandmother wanted me to sit next to her. And she wanted a hug. You know how grandmothers are. She was so proud of me. And I remember if you could picture me standing up in the back of the car, not sitting down because my pants were wet. And I was mortified. I was so embarrassed. And when I got home, I was changing. And my mom said, why are your pants wet? And I broke. And mom's being mom. She says, what happened? And I told her. My dad walked in. I said, I'm a dead man now. I'm crying. I wet my pants. I'm dead. And what my dad did was... He says, tell dad what happened. He was furious with the church, the nun, God, everybody at that point. But he kneeled down next to me, and he, he gave me a peck on the cheek. He says, next time, you just, he gave me skills. You just get up and go to the bathroom. Don't worry about that. And he kept telling me how proud of me he was. 
And when he gave me a peck on the cheek and put his hand around my neck, I felt safe as safe can be. But I forgot that when I'm loaded with resentments. I couldn't see that good, that soft spot, that fatherly thing he had. I missed that for years because I was nursing a grudge to justify my inappropriate behavior. I need something. Well, my dad was a tough guy. He never understood me. He was always in the street. He gambled a lot. So therefore, this is who I am, a drunken dauphin. Lie. And I didn't see that going into a fifth step, that as I'm writing resentments, resentment cause effects where I'm at fault, that would open up a box to some new truth, a new point of view. And for the very first time in my life, I'm not looking at life out from the mess. I'm looking in at mine. There's a shift in step four. It says we learn patience, talents, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies. Now, my dad wasn't my enemy, but I had a different point of view on this guy. And when I got to step nine and sat down and made one of the most powerful amends in my life with him, our relationship changed, and it has evolved, where I can see why when I say he's my hero, he's my hero. We disagree on a lot of things. There's old school and there's my old man. But the respect and the reverence I have for what he overcame and still try to hold a family to me, I could not see that in resentments. It was plaque on my soul. I was injecting poison into my soul and worse, keeping it a secret. Even beyond that, justifying it, rationalize it so I can continue to do what I do. If I had a dollar for every drunk who sat in front of me in my business and in AA who says, I come from a dysfunctional family, they wrecked my life, I'd be a millionaire. What a great hook to lock, to lock onto. It's my family's fault I'm the way I am. Well, I, at some point, I had to take a look at the resentments I'm holding onto. Why don't I want to get free of them? Because there might be nothing left of me. It's all I am. My resentments, my fears, my conduct, all of it, that's who I be. And I keep drinking myself to death. So what I had to do was step four. Uh, you know, step five says we're going to have a new, added, new, re, new attitude, a new relationship with God. So if I don't have one, it's going to be new. And if I have one, it's going to be newer. New attitude. Step two, new relationship. Step three they're talking about. I'm going to rekindle this. And for me, I believed in the carpenter, but there was no relationship when I got here. I had foxhole prayers. June 23rd, 1980, I pleaded. And then the wrinkles get out of your belly. You get back to self-reliance again. What I lacked was a relationship, a communing, a dependence upon this power called God, who I can't touch, who I can't see. But again, we live life forward and understand it backwards. I see, looking back on my life, I can see God working in my life. I'm bathing twice a day. This is a miracle in early recovery. I'm actually concerned about my hair being clean and clean-shaven. This is a miracle. I'm concerned about getting food in my body. And I don't, I don't want to hurt anybody anymore. I've hurt people long enough. And I wasn't the stick-up violent guy, but my alcoholic behavior crushed people, especially those close. I don't want to do that anymore, and I don't want to hurt anymore. I'm tired of hurting. I want to be like Jody Oldtimer sits back and just seems to be chill all the time. How do you get there? And he would say, God, well, how do I get there? Open up your big book. 
So I completed this fourth step inventory. And like many of us, the most difficult part is the sex inventory. Because I thought the book was going to start judging me now on what type of sex I had. <laughs> I thought they're going to throw me out of here. They don't care about what I do behind closed doors. What they're interested in is my conduct. Was it selfish and self-seeking all the time? Self-serving, yes. Was I dishonest? Yes. That I arouse jealousy, bitterness, and suspicion? Yes. That's what men do. What's the problem? And I was brought to page 27 where it says ideas, attitudes, and emotions were once the guiding force in the lives of these men. They had to be cast aside. They don't work. I was brought up. I was the way I was brought up. It, you know, it is what it is. It's okay for men to practice infidelity. Men are men. It's really okay. There's no big deal. What's the problem? Real men do that. If you don't, maybe you're not a real man. This is what I was brought up with. And I get walking to AA and I get slammed right in the face. That's not proper. It's totally inappropriate. Leave the person alone and move on. Don't do that. You hurt people. It was a wake-up call. Oh, my God. Can I do this? I don't know. I need a whole lot of God right now just to get out of bed in the morning. So I got to the sex inventory, and you know what's funny? My sponsor always told me if the name for it, it's already been done. You're not that unique. You're not a unicorn. And he would share with me during that fifth step very similar things, parallel mind, because a lot of our stories are identical. Believe it or not, you know, you have the, if a woman does a fifth step and a guy does a fifth step, you think it's really radically different. It really isn't. Alcoholism is alcoholism, and there's only one God. And we're walking up the trail different ways, but we're getting to that one God, but we all have alcoholism. It just manifests the way it manifests, but it all looks the same. In fact, if we did, we heard all our fifth steps, and we started exchanging fifth steps tonight, in the night we'd say, his sounds like hers, hers sounds like his. It's all the same thing. Dysfunctional. And loaded with fear, the driving force. And the only power that's going to get me out of that is God. And I remember I had this, you know, uh, this, this fourth step, and the first one was lengthy. There was a whole bunch of names on there, my first fourth step, uh, and institutions and principles. And then the fear inventory was loaded with fear about silly things. Not only when am I going to die, am I going to have enough money, but like silly stuff. I'm afraid of everything. I'm afraid of walking into, I can't believe God has me doing this as often as I do. I'm afraid to walk in a room full of crowded people. I'm afraid to walk into a room when there's only a few people. I'm just afraid. You know when you walk into a doctor's office and there's no seats, and you're, uh-oh. What we do now is we pick up a phone, we pretend we're on the phone, like we have other things going on. You know, there's nobody there. You, you, or checking my, all of a sudden I got to check my text messages because I'm so uptight. I'm afraid of failure, I'm afraid of success, I'm afraid of being poor, I'm afraid of being rich, I'm afraid of everything. What am I going to do about this? I, I want intimacy, I'm afraid of intimacy. I want a girlfriend, no I don't. I need something to take this clay and, and fix it and mold it. And most of that was removal because this process that I go through, that we get to go through, is a process of subtraction, not addition. I don't need anything else to get better. 
What I need is a lot less to get better. The death of self is successful living. God provided the soul with everything it needs to follow him. And what he's interested in is one thing, one thing only, not my money, not my property, not my prestige, because he gave it to me in the first place, is eternal salvation. I don't want to get religious on you, but that's what God's looking at. How do I get Joe or Mary Wright to meet me one day? But my humanness is, I don't like this. I'm uncomfortable. I will tell you this. My phrase when I was new was everything in AA beat the streets. Made uncomfortable, it beat the streets. Don't like the way my sponsors told me, beat the streets. There's a change in my life, beat the streets. And since I've been in AA, everything beats the streets. And I've had my back against the wall, beats the streets. Everything does. So I have this fourth step, and uh, I have my appointment to meet my sponsor. And this is the first time out. Now, up until that point, my sponsor, in my mind, invented AA. He, and to me, he walked on water. He levitated. He was the first sponsor, the big book guy. He's doing service. He knows about traditions and concepts. This guy is like the Einstein of AA, and he's my sponsor. I own him. I'm his favorite sponsee, too. We got to get that right. And the morning I was supposed to go to his house, my mind said, who is this guy? You're going to trust another guy? I remember growing up, my dad and my uncles would say, trust no one. The only thing you trust is the money in your pocket. And that voice came back. That's my alcoholism. Don't do a fifth step. You're fine. And I remember dropping to my knees. I said, Father, please, just get me to Tony's house. Please, just get me there. I don't know what I'm walking into, but just at least get me there because I'm relying on him. And uh, he let me in, and uh, he had his usual candles burning. And I sat down with him, and he gave me some ground rules. <clears throat> he had a notepad and pen, which I still do now. He said, I might take some notes while you write, while you speak. He says, because the things God's going to speak to me too that I'm going to write down for you to see, like defects. Like maybe something happened to me at 10 years old. I'm resentful with Joe for doing this. And then here I am maybe 25 years old. It's the same resentment, just different people. And I get to see that. And there were some considerations. And what he did, and all my sponsors have done this, and I try to do this to the men I sponsor, is share with them, too, about similar things that happened to me because I know how uncomfortable they are. I love to watch body language all the time, and I can see they're wrapped up tighter than a major league baseball. I need to ante up for them so they can drop their shoulders and not feel so alone. It's really, really the touch of the master's hand when you get one drunk for fun and for free, sitting with the drunk for a few hours and hearing all of this, understanding what our book says, that this is a life and death there. And this blows my mind that God trusted entrusted one of us on a life and death errand with one of his kids. We're not qualified to be therapists, doctors, lawyers. God says, yes, you are to help one of my kids, because the soul, you don't need degrees. The soul's never for sale. And all I have to do is operate out of the soul to touch the soul. Bill called it the language of the heart. Speak from the heart, we touch the heart. And that's what's going on in step five. It's God's work. And so I sat with this man, and um, he gave me something great I still use today. 
I'm an alcoholic, so my, my inventory sounds like this. Resentment caused, let me explain what happened here. <laughs> and three hours later, I'm still going, because the ego wants to get right in there. For the sponsor to say, I would be resentful too if I was you, let's move on, the guy's a jerk. So what he says, I have to assume whatever God gave you is on paper, so let's stick to that. Let's, let's, let's not go off book. And so resentment caused effects where I'm at fault. Resentment caused effects where I'm at fault, like this. And then he would give me some feedback and some considerations. And little by slowly, I started to breathe. And when it came time to the, 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 the inventory uh, and resentment with, uh, with this guy who was molesting me, this, this was tough for me to tell even my sponsor. Now, I heard about, I gave him a phone call one time about this when I was writing, but now we're face-to-face, we're knee-to-knee. And I'm hoping he doesn't think less of me. And uh, he knew it was coming, and I read it to him, and he said, I'm going to tell you what happened to me. And he shared in depth much more than he was on the phone with me about exactly what happened to him as a little boy. And he talked about how that made him feel, how that, that was thumbprinted on him, if you will, through adolescence. I said, that's me. That's exactly what happened to me. I always felt inadequate about stuff. I'm not a real man. No one else, this never happened to anyone else. And he shared that with me. And my shoulders dropped. And the air was back in my lungs. And what God was doing with the huge spoon or the fist of Gulliver was reaching down and pulling out the poison that has been sitting in there that I was operating out of. See, the great thing about four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, I get to no longer operate out of woundedness. I get to no longer operate out of tr- that kind of stuff. I get to walk free and operate out of the soul. And for me, I'm one of the guys who go through the steps at least once a year. I did, I did, I did uh, a fifth step with Michael. I did a fifth step with my sponsor. Got some six and seven considerations. And five did six and seven and looked at eight and nine back into 10, 11, and 12. And I'm sure if God keeps me around another year, I'll be doing that again. I love the effect produced by it. Yet, even as recent as a month or two ago, going into a fifth step, I don't want to go in there. I know what it's like by now. I don't want to go in there. What I do know now is the part of me that doesn't want to go in there, that's that ego still breathing. It's still in the pan marinating. You don't need to do this. You're sober a long time. Why are you doing this? This is foolish. You're going to waste their time. You don't really have much on here. And I'm always better and cleaner on the way out. And I'm open to suggestions. That's really important. The soul is always, always right. It always knows where to go, what to say, and how to be, what to do. And as a result of these steps, this personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism is I don't have to, I don't, I don't operate out of the mind as much as I used to. It's there. I fall prey to it. It tricks me. It's sneaky. It's slippery. It pretties up a junkyard now and again. But if you looked at the spreadsheet of my life, it's an uptick to God all the time. I'm operating for most, most of the time out of my soul. And sometimes it looks like this. Marion, I don't know what we're going to do. Oh, my God. And I'm frustrated. I'm angry. And something says, what about me? Oh, God, right. Father, I surrender this to you. Get back in the saddle. Keep going. Vital to a drunk like me. And I do, I do none of this perfect. I said from a million podiums, guys, 
One day God might make me a spiritual being, and one day God might make me an enlightened being, but one thing he's got me with is human being, which means I'm subject to break down at any moment. I'm flawed. That's my going around. I'm the car that leaks oil. I didn't want to admit that, that that was less than an AA. What a tremendous amount of freedom. What liberation in going before my God and understanding how broken and flawed I am and the greater need for him, the greater want to practice fidelity to God, the greater want to fix up relationships that have been tainted, whether it's their fault or mine. they got to get right. I'll make my attempt. I will push the rock. God will move the rock. life and death, Aaron. And there's times where guys have been in front of me and I'm doing a fifth step and I have like eight billion things to do. My mind says, you don't have time for two or three hours and you got stuff to do. Like what? Uh, I don't know. Something. I know I got something to do. And sometimes I'm just tired. You know, you feel, bless you, you're just physically tired. Bless you. Um, but it's unbelievable. Mary and I talk about this all the time. It's like, I don't, want, I, I don't have the energy for this phone call. I can't hear one more inventory. And then you sit down with that person, whether it's an inventory or a fifth step or the phone call. And when it's done, I'm light again. I'm lighter again. So that drunk sitting in front of me with all his or her stuff is actually doing me a favor. Nothing in AA makes sense. But in the spiritual world, it makes perfect sense. So I do this whole fifth step. And for me, I have about a two-hour attention span. And I start to wait, you know, wander, and that's usually when I shut it down, we'll come back another day. And the same thing with my sponsors. They would sit with me for a couple of hours. Let's pick it up tomorrow. There are guys who do marathons. I can't. Uh, When I start to drift away because I'm tired and I can't hear anymore, the words, it's a life and death errand, show up quickly. And I I, I can't do that to this drunk who's pouring a heart and soul out to me and I'm drifting. So I'll shut it down. But it comes a point where we do complete. I like to open up with prayer, close with prayer just to bookend that, understand who's in charge here and how sacred this really is. And the longer I'm sober, I'm, I, it, it, it blows my mind how God has given us this task. I mean, clergy do it sometimes. We, the book talks about that. But for the most part, we do this work. We hear fifth steps. It's as old as the oldest scripture. It's, it's, it's confession. And God has entrusted us with this to help his kids. So it tells me this, when I get home, finish the fifth step, I find a place where I can be uh, quiet for an hour. Now this is really important, especially, and I mean no offense by this, um, young folks, I know we're glued to our phones and social media and want everyone to like us, um, but we've got to put the phone down, take the earbuds out, and we don't want to do, hey, give me a like, I just did my fifth step. <laughs> I've seen, have you, have you seen these people? I just did a fifth step. It's like quiet time, it's communing time. The reason why it's difficult is because there's no distraction. I'm going in there, just me and God all alone for all hour. It's the only time in the book it gives me a time frame, one hour, you and God. That might make us wiggle a little bit. 
And what I'm supposed to do is review the first five proposals. Am I clear on one here? Do I really believe I'm an alcoholic of the hopeless variety they describe in here? Do I believe this power greater than myself can restore me to sanity, wholeness of mind, to truth, to living in his light? Do I want to get out? Am I still willing to turn everything over to God my whole life? My life is none of my business. Am I still in this place? Have I been really thorough in four? Have I given it all up, whatever God gave me, and I'm holding on to stuff? And sometimes during that hour quiet time, it's happened to me where you go, I just remembered something. Because it's quiet. It's still. God, we can hear God. My prayer is I thank God from the bottom of my heart that I know him better, even if I'm not feeling it. These fifth-step promises may not happen. Six, seven, eight, nine, they might happen. The first time I started to realize something was going on with me, I was uh, ready to, I was making an eight-step list, and I was doing, I had done six and seven, and all I felt was relieved that I was done with the fifth step. I didn't feel any of these fifth-step promises till later on, but they're there. It'll happen. We'll experience it. It'll be the aha moments, the turning point for many of us. I take this book down from the shelf and I turn to page 59, which contains the 12 steps. I review the first five proposals. Then Bill asks us the same question like four or five different ways. And what he's asking me in a nutshell, Pete, have you been thorough? Have you been clear here, clean here, anything you're holding on to? Because it's going to be a lead weight if you do. And if I can answer those questions that I'm free and clear, the hour's up and I just sit in quiet time just me and God. The first hour quiet time, I was wiggling a lot. Looking at, oh, another 20 minutes, okay. You know, I'll close my eyes some more, okay. How much? One minute went by, I thought it was two hours. You know. And when the hour was up, I called my sponsor. Now what happened to me, um, I think I have time to share this. It was about the third time through the steps, I go into the hour quiet time. And Mark Gage was my sponsor at the time. This was unbelievable. He had talked to me. I had heard it, and I've even shared it about the death of self, experienced the death of self before the physical death, daily dying for successful living, the death of self. I can no longer use self. Self is the killer. And I'm in this hour quiet time, and something starts to happen to me. I'm starting to feel kind of really vulnerable. I share too much, second-guessing everything. Who's this God? Who's this sponsor? What's this AA about? And I'm starting to feel physically not good. Anxiety, a little agitation, and I felt like my body was being sucked into a, into a cave. It's like almost imploding, and I felt weak. But I've come to find out, and this is Thomas Burton, in our weakest moment, we find God's strength. And what seems to be most dark, I find God's light. But I need to walk through the darkness, and I need to feel weak to get both of those. And I couldn't take it anymore. And I called, went to the phone. It was only a half hour, 20 minutes into it. And I called up Mark. Is Mark, here's what's going on with me. And he said, and I quote, it sounds to me like you're having an experience and hung up the phone. This was my fearless leader doing this. I was expecting a long um, assessment of me and point me in the right direction. He did nothing of the sort. Well, he called me back later on that day, and he paralleled what he did to what uh, 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 Silky did to Bill. 
when he walked in and saw Bill in this condition, and Bill is telling him what happened, as we know, Silkworth says something like, hold on to it, it's better than what you had. And he left him alone. He didn't try to interpret it, because the mind will interpret away a God experience. Mark recognized that, bless his heart. And he said to me later on, he used to call me money. He says, money, we've been talking about the death of self, the death of self. Don't you see what was going on? All of that you experienced, you questioned everything, doubted everything. It was God's way of removing the last of the plaque on your soul. There's more work to be done, but that's how it feels sometimes. Even a morning of the old life, there was nothing left of you. You said that, not me, he said. I thought there was nothing left of me. What a great thing God did for you. It didn't feel good. I opened up this talk with saying about change. Am I willing to suffer a little bit and feel uncomfortable? Yes, well, I got it. But coming out of that, I was a new man. As our book says, reborn. Guys, I'd never been to college, so I don't, you don't need a college degree to do this. The soul is the soul. My wife was MIA. I was married at the time for three days. She went to work and didn't come home. And she was out coking up, coking it up, and potting it up, and drinking it up, and sleeping it around, the whole thing. That Sunday, I went to see uh, someone named Thich Nhat Hanh at the Beacon Theater, in this condition. And when she finally walked in the door, in the same clothes, reeking of booze, and looking like she had been around, my heart was broken, because I knew the marriage was over. I shared this for this reason. If it happened a day before this fifth step, there would have been an argument in that house. And who would have been arguing is the male ego. I'm a man. You don't do this to me. I got to protect my... I got I to make a stand here. And what took over me was God. For the first time, I didn't like what happened and the marriage ended. Thank God. But I saw another sick and suffering alcoholic standing in front of me because that's what we do when we're active and untreated. We destroy everything. I did. And over the years, I tried to place her. I placed her in about six treatment centers and never worked. But I was made new from the inside. I didn't strike out. I didn't get verbally abusive. I didn't do any of that. I just almost had pity, and I walked away. And I've been on that horse for the longest time. My sponsors say, discipline is the horse I ride. Not rigid anymore, but discipline to this life. Incredible what happens in writing, turning it over in three, writing a four-step inventory, and not hanging around in step four, waiting for something to happen. Getting it done, because my life depends upon it. Go and sit with another drunk. And if you knew, men with men, women with women is really important here. That's been my experience. And then let God take me to six, seven, eight, nine. And then one day I'll stand, as our book says, in the sunlight at last. That's all I got. Peace. Let's give Peter another hand. Yes. So for our secretary report, we have Joe, uh, Joey. It's you? 
Oh, James. Yay. That's... Hey, James. In keeping with the seven tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. Uh, we've asked Nicole, I believe, to read their covered statement. We read this statement to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering and what exactly it means to be a recovered alcoholic. So please welcome up Nicole. Hi, I'm Nicole. I'm an alcoholic. Recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Great job. Thank you, Nicole. Um, 1940s-style big book sponsorship from forward to the second edition, Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. Is there anyone that needs a sponsor? Anyone? Sir, could you stand up for a second? What's your name? Awesome. Welcome, Brad. Anybody else? Uh, is there any um, recovered alcoholics out there? Can we get a show of hands? Sorry. Sweet. So all these people are going to go meet up with you after the meeting. We're going to go over the events that we have. Uh, Intergroup is where you can buy all AA's related literature, medallions. Intergroup's also responsible for the where and when, the AA hotline. Um, and I believe they have new hours, as you can see in red. Um, next. Broward County Institutions Committee is responsible for bringing meetings into places like jails and detoxes and rehabs, the places that we seem to not be able to get out of sometimes. Uh, and they meet monthly at the 12-step house. Do we have any BCIC members here tonight? No? Okay. Uh, next slide. There's plenty of volunteering opportunities in the uh, community. We have um, flyers on the back table are there. You can check out all the ones that are coming up. Uh, we also have CDs, mugs, large print big books, and little red books in the, uh, and big book dictionaries in the back for sale. We meet here every Thursday promptly at 7.15, and we ask that you be here at the sound of the bells. We'll see you next week. We have, okay, we have tonight's session and all past speakers' podcasts at alcoholicsandgod.org. Invite everyone to our Monday night big book study. Invite those whom you wish to thank... Oh, yeah. I'm supposed to do this. Um, if you want <laughs> thank, to thank our speaker tonight, if you would just line up down the center aisle, that would be great. 
And we will close right now seated with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us
sounds and oh when you smiling When you laughing, when you laughing, yes, the sun comes shining through. But when you crying. Sighing, baby, and be happy again. Yes, indeed, I'm smiling.
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. Come up, 
lessons when I go to sleep at night and I dream now. Everything's all right. <laughs> oh, man. Going on 10 years old, that song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye.
Just won't say 